Living the Faith Podcast. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com Welcome back to another episode of Living the Faith. This is Ben, Joe, Mike, and we've got Tom calling in with us today. Today we're going to talk about another woman, a beautiful story of a beautiful saint, St. Helena. Ben, can you give us a little bit of the background on St. Helen? So obviously uh, St. Helen or St. Helena was the mother of Constantine. Um, The time period we're looking at is 248 when she was born, and she was born in Asia Minor, so uh, Bithynia, uh, this would be present-day Turkey, and um, uh, obviously she would later in life uh, become the empress, um, but starting from fairly humble beginnings, um, she's referred to by St. Ambrose as the bona stabularia, or the good stable maid, or the good innkeeper. Um, she obviously came from a very uh, poor family uh, with no nobility or standing uh, in the kingdom, and it was said that she met uh, the father of Constantine, Constantinus, um, when he was there in campaign against Zebonia, uh, and that was in Asia Minor. Um, and so they met, uh, and they were married. And uh, Constantine was born around 272. Uh, so uh, very low beginnings, um, married uh, the standing emperor of that time, and, uh, then, and then Constantine was born. Um, but very soon after that, uh, there was uh, a separation. So Constantinus, who was not Catholic, this is, this is a pagan emperor at this time, and, and Helena was not converted as well, uh, divorced her and separated her to marry a more affluent and more uh, a married woman with more uh, standing in the political realm. And so she and Constantine were both separated from the royal family. They were separated from the royal court, and they were actually sent away. And this continued on until... Uh, the death of Constantinus uh, just after 300, so around 306. And uh, that's really where the story kind of takes off, and this is where the introduction of Catholicism takes place. Obviously, we're talking about huge social impact here for Christianity and for the universal church. So looking at uh, the events of that time, this is focusing on the conversion of her son, Constantine, and with, the uh, obviously, the epic vision on, on the Malavian Bridge uh, in 312. So one of the one of the first things uh, to talk about when we're talking about um, the Battle of Malavian Bridge, um, of course, is the vision that took place uh, in the days preceding that battle. So remember, at the time, Constantine was pagan, and um, Christianity was still fairly young. We're talking the three hundreds, and uh, Constantine had a vision, and this vision um, was there. So he had come from England at the time. There was confusion as to who was going to be heir to the throne. Obviously, Constantine um, was the legitimate heir, uh, but there was already someone in line that had been trained and kind of coached by his father to take his place, um, and that person did. Um, That person then died, and there were uh, other contenders to the throne. And so this this other contender was meeting um, Constantine in Rome, and the uh, Malavian Bridge is still there to this day. It's about... Um, two and a half, maybe three miles uh, from the Vatican. Uh, but they met there in Rome, and that's where the battles take place. So just a few days before this, Constantine had this vision. And the vision was that he saw the um, cross in the sky and with the sun behind it. Now, at this point, the sun was still worshipped as a deity, and the cross um, was there in front of the sun, and Constantine saw this as a sign of the cross superseding 
the sun, which would, would have been a deity at that time. So, so this has to do with a symbol that we see in Catholicism quite frequently. And I don't think a lot of our listeners might not know what that symbol, where that symbol came from and what the meaning of that was. Can you just, I think that, that, that symbol is, it looks like a P uh, behind okay. an X. Okay, so uh, Joseph there is referring to the uh, key row, and what we're talking about is the the Greek letters, which we see them as the P and the X, and these are the letters in the in the in the word or the name of Christ, and so obviously these were part of the vision that was there in the sky, and some scholars disagree whether or not Constantine saw this symbol with the cross, the actual cross as we know it, the cross of Christ, or if it was just the P and the X that appeared. But regardless, this symbol, the Cairo and the cross, appeared then um, on the shields of all of Constantine's men, and it was the voice of God telling him that he will conquer, this was during the vision, that he would conquer um, with this sign. So in this sign he shall conquer. And so Constantine took that, that very seriously. Uh, before the battle began, all of his knights and all of his soldiers took on this symbol on their person and went into battle with that outnumbered um, and took on uh, the uh, pretender to the throne there in Rome. So just at, at this point, though, obviously the Roman Empire uh, very much was famous for associating crucifixion, uh, that is killing people on crosses. So how, how recently... Or how I should say, how long ago did they abandon this practice, such that it wouldn't be abhorrent for uh, Constantine and his men to to view the cross or the hero, whatever whatever that would have been at that time. Let's say it was the cross for sake of argument, um, or sure. were they still doing it, or, were, or or was crucifixion still a fairly normal method of punishment in in the Roman Empire in that in that part of the world? It still was a fairly normal form of punishment um, uh, that was still prevalent. <laughs> And um, it was still would definitely have been recognized for what it was. Um, so that only strengthens um, the belief that Constantine had in this vision uh, to then take on this symbol as his sign of victory, as his as his banner. So at that time, uh, you have his men preparing for battle, painting these symbols on their shields and then going into battle and. Um, obviously, tactically, the battle was very interesting. Um, tacticians uh, talk about it in, in many different ways. Uh, but if you can picture a bridge over a large river, um, the men of the opposing forces uh, are, has, are said to have positioned themselves much too closely to the water, and they had their backs to the water, and that was their key downfall. So Constantine used this against them and basically drove his cavalry into their line, breaking it and driving them either into the water or back across the bridge that they had made. Now, the bridge at this time was was quite temporary and was unable to sustain uh, the large amount of men that were rushing across it, the ones that were able to get to the bridge. And the bridge um, basically fell apart when the vast majority of the men were, were on the bridge and the rest were routed almost immediately. And so it was an overwhelming victory for Constantine and then um, won him the assurance of the throne. So obviously very, very key, um, a sport, uh, especially after having coming from this vision from God and uh, winning this in, in the name of this, this Catholic symbol. So Constantine was the first within his family to convert. He converted before his mother, St. Helen. That's correct. Okay. And he conquered in the, in the name of the sign of the cross. I mean, according to the vision. Yep. Without even knowing everything about the cross itself was, was one could say was chosen by God, was given this symbol and uh, was then taking the symbol to battle. And of course it's beautiful. 
um, because uh, from the very beginning of his reign, uh, he was already bringing about victories uh, in the name of the cross. So St. Helen, who had uh, disappeared from public life for a time uh, after, her, after the divorce, which she withstood, she was um, really the, um, a very important woman in the empire and then not an important woman anymore. Yeah, exactly. And um, obviously, one has a role as the wife of the emperor. But when she was brought back to court, um, she was given an honorific title of empress, even though she wasn't, of course, uh, the, the, the living wife of an emperor, but she was the mother of an emperor. She was still given that title, which was... Uh, That's customary. Uh, that, that was customary within the Roman Empire, and, and, and it was a, really a derivative of, of other, um, other kingships throughout time. In fact, the queen mother has biblically has always played an important role um the mother of king david was the only person on earth that he would actually kneel down to and bow down to the queen mother a symbol of our lady has always been an important symbol and so it's funny that out of obscurity um saint helen reemerges onto the scene as the most powerful woman in the world and then, of course, she takes that power and then uses it for Christianity and uses it for Catholicism. So up to this point, right, I, I had this discussion about the importance of the state when it comes to um, the faith and the importance that the, the, that the state has with regards to taking us to our final end. The Roman Empire is part of redemption or salvation history. Right, because up to the uh, point of the Roman Empire, when the Roman Empire is being formed, that is the known world coming together as this unified, known, civilized uh, part of the world. And so Christ's, Christ makes his, uh, his infinite sacrifice on the cross but he chooses the Roman Empire to be the causeway, to be the infrastructure in which he will, that, that the apostles and the early Christians will spread the faith. So this is a critical turning point that God now comes down to Constantine, who is a pagan, and saying, now's the time that the faith is going to explode. The Christians have been being in the Colosseum. They've been being eaten alive by lions and tortured and hung on crosses, etc. And now this is the turning point that God chooses under the rule of Constantine and his mother, St. Helen, as we'll see, um, is going to play this role in, in sanctifying or Catholicizing the empire. Oh, yeah. The Christianization of the world could not have occurred were it not for the conversion of... Emperor St. Constantine. He was the first Christian emperor of Rome. And prior to him, from the days of Nero, Christians were burned at the stake in order to light the games, the barbaric games, in the Colosseum. And, I mean, and, and back to Joe's point and, and uh, Mike's point, uh, obviously the, the faith could not have grown had the seeds not first been watered with the blood of the martyrs that had come before. And, you know, almost 300 years of persecution and the most grotesque martyrdom that the church has seen um, took place. And it was after that time that God chose to intervene to convert the soul of Constantine, to elevate him through, through battle, through victory, 
uh, to the realm of emperor and then to elevate his mother, Empress Helena, uh, to that particular role, knowing the role that she would play and the importance that she would play for the Catholic Church. On the other side of this break, we're going to talk about exactly what she did for the faith and in particular, some of the incredible relics that she discovered. You're listening to the Living the Faith podcast, brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. We are boldly, authentically, and unapologetically Catholic. Find us on the web at restoringthefaith.com. Okay, so we're back, and we're talking about uh, St. Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, and Empress herself. And right now, uh, we've covered the conversion of Constantine, and we'll t- we're going to be talking about the Edict of Milan and the effect that that had. Um, and, and the Empress would have converted at this point. So we know her conversion took place sometime after the conversion of Constantine, but before the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan is coming, um, so obviously the visions that Constantine had was in about 312, and the Edict of Milan comes very shortly thereafter, so in 313. And what this basically did was to cease persecution of Christians, cease the seizure of their lands, uh, cease their martyrdom, um, and to restore them to a favored position uh, in the realm, and also to elevate the faith, the Catholic faith, to that of the state religion, so the, the officially recognized religion of the Roman Empire. One of the things that she is so remarkable about her life is she had a conversion later in life. She was an, an older woman, and in those times, um, which, which, which re, really even predates medieval times, here she is like you know, in her 50s, 60s, and 70s, and she is out and about finding these incredible relics, including the, the true cross, the nails that were used to nail our Lord to the cross. Um, she brings back the stairs. She brings back the cloak. So, Ben, what are we ref- when when Mike says the stairs? What kind of what stairs are we referring to? So these this would be Santa Scala. So these would be the actual stairs that were in Pontius Pilate's house and that were used um, by Christ as he climbed to his judgment by Pontius Pilate after the scourging. After the scourging. So these these stairs obviously would have been exposed not only to our Lord's body but also to his precious blood. And these were one of the many relics that Saint Helen brought back to Rome and that we that we have to this day that we cherish to this day. And um, well, something, an interesting note that's happening right now, I think the news broke maybe in the last 48 hours or so, is that for the first time in 300 years, since the 1700s, these stairs are now, they're obviously these stairs are in Rome, just outside of St. John Lateran and up the street from Santa Croce. Uh, these stairs have for, you know, hundreds of years, for centuries, they've been covered with wood out of respect, obviously, and for the preservation of the, the marble stairs. And um, uh, if you were a pilgrim in Rome, it was necessary, of course, if you wanted to receive the indulgences, but also if you were a pilgrim out of devotion, you'd want to climb these chairs, stairs as Christ did. Um, they're covered with wood, but in these stairs there are little glass windows, and these windows are to commemorate where the drops of blood were said to have fallen on these stairs. Now, right now, the stairs are under restoration. The wood parts that cover these stairs are under restoration, and for the first time in the last 300 years, the marble, the original marble that Christ himself touched, is now exposed for pilgrim veneration, and you can actually climb the stairs, the same stairs, touching the same stairs that Christ himself um, touched, and they'll be, they'll be open like that until Pentecost. I, I really wish I was in Rome. That's amazing. 
I mean, what's so incredible about the wood that was built to protect the marble and to protect the sacred blood of our Lord is that the wood was so worn when I saw it 11 years ago. Oh, oh yeah. The, the grooves of the knees of pilgrims that have come for centuries were worn deep into every stair. Um, They're worn down by people's knees. It's not like people are walking up these stairs. Nobody and just to be clear, it, it's both the marble and the wood are... are they're indented. Indented. Yeah. Indented. Yeah. With the devotion of the, the people that have come before us from the last centuries. So, yeah, no, it's truly inspirational. If, if you've never been to Rome, that's certainly, even if you just did that, it'd be worth it. But, of course, if you were in Rome, I'd hope you do a lot more than, than, than Justice on Scala. But back to St. Um, Helena, um, and she brought back many, many artifacts of uh, the Passion. But that's not all that she did. So, um, obviously, we have the Edict of Milan that's passed, and that was about 313. And then about 10 years later, Constantine sends his mother, I'm sure at her request, uh, to the Holy Land to try to locate uh, whatever she can that is left of the, um, the, the passion itself. And um, so just to put this in context, okay, so this is the empress. This is the mother of the standing emperor of Rome. And uh, she's sent to the Holy Land. At this point, she has to be in her 70s. Um, I was trying to do the math, and it looks like she's about 76 and she's taking a sea voyage uh, into the Holy Land. And when she arrives there and has, and has asked um, everyone that's there what the tradition is, um, what, is what has been passed down, where, where are these, these relics of the Passion, um, she's given various advice. She's given different directions. And she, she looks for it for quite some time and prays for a sign. And one of the things that happens is there's a lightning strike that takes place. And lightning strikes this temple, um, and it's one of the pagan temples that was erected a um, hundred years before. And uh, so she immediately orders that the temple is destroyed, and she tears it down and uh, proceeds to dig. And she's there with her men digging, looking for uh, relics of the passion, and they unearth three crosses. And immediately she's looking for verification to see which one of these crosses, of course, is Christ. Because, of course, Christ was crucified um, with two other criminals. And uh, and so in order to ascertain whether or not uh, she had found the true cross, she seeks um, to find an invalid at that time that she can then test the efficacy of, of this, this precious relic. And there are different legends that surround this. So one of the legends is there was a man passing by with leprosy. And they asked him to touch the, the three crosses, and he, he proceeds to touch one, and nothing happens, and he, and he touches the second one, and nothing happens. And then he touches the third and is instantly cured. And, of course, at that moment, St. Helen knows that she has, has found the true cross, and her, and her quest has been worth you know, everything that she's gone through up to this point. Um, one of the other stories is that there was a funeral procession that was passing by, and that the dead man that was there being carried to his tomb was touched to the cross revocation, and he was brought back to life. And then there was uh, a third story, and these could all be true. I mean, I'm not saying that none of these that some of these aren't true. I'm just saying that these are the legends that surround this. And there's always oh, there's always truth to the legend. It may not be exactly how the story is told, but there's always truth that's there. Um, there was a a holy woman of that time, and in fact, she was uh, basically. Uh, running a, a small, very early version of what we'd call a nunnery of a cloister, and there were uh, several holy um, virgins that were living with her, and she was dying, and she was ailing. And the true cross, or the three crosses, were brought to her, and she touched them, and then was cured when she had touched the, the true cross. And so um, St. Helen finds uh, the three crosses. Uh, she tracks down 
uh, the uh, the nails that are also found with the cross, um, the uh, the tunic that Christ uh, was wearing up until the crucifixion. These are things that were preserved by the Christians of the place and were held as sacred up until that time. Um, she brought back the obviously the true cross. We've got the nails. We've got the crown of thorns. Uh, the cloak, the stairs, and then, of course, thirdly, the pillar of flagellation. So this is something you can also see in Rome. It's in the Church of St. Praxedes, and um, uh, this church is is a great example of of kind of the Middle Eastern influences because it's completely covered with mosaics, but it's still on display there, and you can see it. It's an excellent example. So um, obviously the, the miracles aren't done. So she takes all of these relics that she's collected from the from the east, she loads it up on her ship, and she's going home. And they experience um, one of the worst uh, tempests uh, that could possibly be imagined, and the ship is sinking. So all this lost. Uh, Saint Helena knows that she's going to lose these relics; that they won't make it back to Rome, and they won't be put on veneration. So, um, in desperation, and knowing the power of these relics, and knowing of their uh, Christ control over the seas, she takes one of the nails and casts it into the sea. And immediately the waves are calmed, and the ship is saved, and their precious cargo is saved, and they continue on their way. So once they arrive in Rome, um, and, I, and I should say, too, that this, this kind of started back when she was still in the Middle East. They built several churches. Wherever they found a relic, a church was built. So there was a church, a, a massive basilica that's mentioned by all of the authors of the time, were built on the location of where they found the uh, the, the cross. And there were several other either convents or monasteries or churches that were built in the East that are part of her legacy that she gave to the church. And and when you think about this, I mean, obviously we take some of our basilicas and we take some of our major shrines for granted, but what she's doing is setting up the foundations of the devotion, the key devotions that we have in our faith surrounding the passion of Christ, the most important thing in our faith, the the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord, She's building up the the ability for us to have and continue these devotions um, in the relics that she preserved and brought. So you can't underestimate the impact that she had. And so when she comes back to Rome, she does the exact same thing. So whether it's Santa Croce, the church she built uh, uh, in Jerusalem, you know, this is the the church that was actually attached to her private residence and had the uh, the cross and other various um, uh, implements of the Passion she had there. She built that church, a massive basilica, and it's been it's been made bigger and, and embellished over the centuries, of course, but she was the one that first built it. And then you have St. John Lateran's. And she's doing all of these things with, like, with public money. Right. You know, like, that's an interesting thing. She had, um, she had plenary say over the, 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 the piggy bank. She controlled the treasury of her son emperor constantine i mean this is a this is an incredible example of the first time in history that church and state catholic church and state were were effectively one unit and working in concert with each other because the taxpayers of the roman emperor the empire were funding saint helen's expeditions to the holy land and the beautiful things that she built were built with taxpayer dollars. Can you imagine that? I mean, you would you would literally never see that today. Yeah, but what a blinding example of excellence uh, to, to spend to taxpayer. This is the most perfect example and one that we benefit to this day almost 2,000 years later. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the Church of St. John Lateran, you go there today 
it's still there. It's been there for 1,700 years almost, right? Yeah, like, in all of its glory. In all of mm-hmm. its glory. And um, even the edifice existed prior to... She didn't actually build that church. She renovated that facility, <laughs> which was given to her by the Lateran family, which was a noble uh, Roman family, which had preexisted. Uh, so it was a baptism of that edifice, and it is still here to this day. So who knows how old it is? It's, I mean, but 1,700 years is incredible. Yeah. No. No, it boggles the mind. Um, and once again, we cannot underestimate the contribution that she made to the universal church. And um, an interesting interesting side note is, so we've talked about Santa Croce in Jerusalem, and that is the church that houses the principal relics of the Passion, which is down the street from St. John Lateran's. And the reason it's called Santa Croce in Jerusalem, so the Holy Cross in Jerusalem, is because she brought back so much soil from Jerusalem and spread it across the floor of the church so that one would literally be in Jerusalem when pilgrims came to venerate the two cross. It just blows the mind. It's almost like the local Jerusalem embassy right. in Rome. No. <laughs> it's amazing. It's incredible. The the uh, devotion of this 76-year-old woman to achieve this much for the faith after having just been converted from paganism yeah. um, uh, is... That's is, a pretty radical conversion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also the relics, too, in this church are, are simply amazing. Um, unfortunately, the uh, the old monastery that was attached to Santa Croce was turned into a hotel. But fortunately, I did get to stay in that hotel and see these these relics up close uh, over the period of, of several weeks. Wow. And, and one of the relics there, this is amazing, right? So we have got the relics of the Passion, right? So when you think of the relics of the Passion, you think, all right, we've got the, the cross. We've got the, the sign that was hanging on the cross. We've got the thorns. Some of the thorns from the crown of thorns are there. But then, and one what you would not normally think of, you've got the finger, of St. Thomas, of course, because of Doubting oh, Thomas's wow. finger. And it's there in a reliquary still case. Still yet related to the Passion. Yeah, still yes. related to the yes. Passion. Uh, so, uh, And then there's also, uh, I, be- I believe it was the um, the spear of St. Longinus mm. that was brought along. That's uh, in St. Peter's. It's, right. Uh, in one of the four main pillars of the, um, what do they call that? It, the, the, the transept. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the in the in the center part, where you know, obviously St. Peter's in the shape of a cross, where those meet in the middle, it's one of those four pillars. There are other relics in those other four pillars that we'll cover at a different time, but it, it's in in one of those pillars. Um, an interesting point about the the true cross, right? Because we keep talking about the true cross, and obviously it was a single entity. And then so you might say, all right, well, I'd love to venerate or go see where the true cross is held. And unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the Holy Cross has been chopped up into so many different bits. It sounds a little bit crass to say it that way, but it's been it's been cut up in multiple pieces, and there are places all around the world, but most uh, mostly in Europe, um, where the larger pieces of these are held. And some ones in Rome, ones in Jerusalem, ones in Constantinople. Um, One's uh, uh, a very. Do you mean Istanbul? You know, we might have to go into it. They might be giant song, and that just won't I, be helpful at all. Um, but I so wish we were doing video right now. I wish everyone could have seen your face. <laughs> That's all I could think of. Um, but uh, <laughs> the largest piece I believe to date uh, is actually in Spain. Go figure. But um, there, there's actually two very, very large pieces that have been reshaped to make a new cross, shall we say, 
and it it's not very big uh, in comparison, but it's still the largest beast known to date. So right, and we talk about the separation of the true cross, and Joseph was like, maybe that's that's a little crass speaking of that way, but um, I, I think we have to think about this in terms of the most sacred object in all of Christendom, and the importance that people in these different countries around the world have the ability to reference it and have proximity to it because the cross is the symbol and proof of our faith. And and even specifically for people who are non-believers or pagans, um, like the Muslims, um, when they conquered the Byzantine Empire, the greatest spoil of war that they could take to show their conquest was to take the relic of the true cross. Yeah. And it was, of course, Constantine that cemented that symbol as the actual symbol of Christianity. I mean, up until that point, even when, when you look in the, in the early catacombs and the martyrs of the time, you had other symbols which, which uh, you know, stood for Christ. You had the fish and all these things. But it was that, that was the first time that you had the cross under whose banner people fought. And you see that again, of course, in the Crusades and and later in time. But that's a pretty powerful symbol. And, of course, we wouldn't have that symbol in the same way that we have it today were it not for Emperor St. Constantine. So, obviously, I think one of the big lessons that we can take away from all of this is back when Constantine saw this sign in the sky, the sign of the cross, and took it as his banner, he was a pagan, he was a non-believer, he was not a Catholic. And yet, this, this sign by itself worked that miracle, obviously, for his conversion. But the point is, these articles that we as Catholics venerate, they're not, they're not, they are sacred, they're not, um, they're not maybe at, a, at, at such a high level as the Holy Eucharist or anything like that, but they certainly have a power in and of themselves to convert hearts, to convert souls, and so on. And so, uh, especially with non-Catholics, even giving them a rosary just for a non-Catholic to hold a rosary is to give them an opportunity of grace. It doesn't matter. Maybe they don't understand it. Maybe they don't. Maybe, maybe they're even openly antagonistic to it. The point is, just like Constantine, these acts, these, these uh, objects and, and signs and devotions all have a certain power to work a grace in the soul. And of course, the cross as a representation of the manner in which our Lord was crucified, it's a symbol of his death. We call Good Friday, Good Friday, the day in which he died. And yet the cross, we have inverted the symbol, and it is a symbol of victory. Let us fight victory under that same banner in our daily lives. Living the Faith Podcast. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com